stop. It never rains at Austin Stadium. Hey, happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome back to It Never Rains. Tyson Alger here, joined by Aaron Fentress. It is Thursday. There are still no sports, but we got a show coming to you guys today. We have former Oregon quarterback Chris Miller coming on the podcast to talk a little bit about uh, going through the NFL draft draft process and uh, uh, what coaching in the XFL was like. He was uh, Houston's offensive coordinator for for five weeks before everything was suspended. And uh, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're still tr- just trying to get through all this like you guys are. So uh, I will bring on uh, Aaron Fentress here. Aaron, how, uh, how are the days going by for you? Not bad, actually. You know, the, the, the kids are home, so they're going a little stir crazy. Well, my daughter is. She's She's a social butterfly, so it's kind of hitting her that she can't hang out with her friends. Uh, very often, she's had a couple of, uh, you know, go outside and go work out with someone or something like that. But uh, we're pretty much going to shut her down now. And my son, though, he's chill. Like he's 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 a hog a hog and a, a, a pig and slop, I guess I'll say. Because uh, he just got the MLB the show yesterday. Did you get it yet? Yeah, I got. I I, I said I told myself this was going to be the year I wasn't going to get it because what? every single year it's just like it's just like minor improvements and it's basically because i just play it too much so i was like i'm not gonna buy this next year like i'm gonna read books in the spring like we all know that's not gonna happen but yeah so what? i bought it on friday i know what right books? like what the hell i know anyways, anyways I, I, so he's I, happy good oh i was just gonna say i bought it on friday and i've played it a lot already so how'd you get it on friday if uh if, if you if, if you did like the online order like you could get oh. like two days early access um see i like to buy it so i can sell it <laughs> I, sold, I sold the show 19 for 13 bucks. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what did you do? What did you do with those 13 bucks? <laughs> they just ended up on eBay, so I probably spent them on some Teddy Bridgewater cards or something. Uh, so he's happy, and he's kicking my ass in NBA 2K left and right with the Blazers. I'm just really pissed off about that. But so we're we're playing video games. And I'm mixing in some work. The good thing for me, from a work standpoint, is that there's still offseason NFL going on. So the Seahawks are yeah the NFL is like the only news that's actually like legitimately happening like like every other sport it's like all right let's do like a look back at the '94 spring practice of the Oregon and then you're just like I got actual real news to cover here guys like and it's gonna keep going they're gonna have they're gonna have the draft so through the draft there's gonna be NFL news it'll be interesting to see what happens after that because clearly they're not gonna be able to have OTAs and things like that until. Uh, all the, the this all dies down if it dies down anytime soon. So work wise, there's still you, things to do, but not as much. Obviously, it's not the same. Um, you you guys should all see how how cocky our NFL writers are in the Slack channels, just walking around, being like, "We're carrying the company." <laughs> yeah, right we got now. something. We're the only one covering real stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you have any games? Neither do we. But guess what? We have an off season. And so I found it interesting. People were criticizing the NFL for even going forward, but. You know, saying it was insensitive and stuff like that, but I, I think the opposite. I just feel like they okay. So, 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 so at least it's some kind of diversion and distraction for people. Exactly. Yeah. Like, 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 like we we live in like the most criticized time, anyways. And now that everyone's just sitting at home on their computers all day, like, what do you expect is going to happen? Like, the NFL is actually like giving people entertainment in a way that's not violating any of the like, uh, you know, like it. It's all behind the scenes like not in large groups and it like like it they're they're just trying to keep keep going business as usual and it's and it's entertaining as hell during the time when we have nothing to watch or read about in terms of live sports so thank you nfl you're, you're doing a service to everybody 
let's let's talk a little bit about quarterbacks. Um, Oregon's uh, got a commitment from 2021 quarterback uh, Ty Thompson from uh, he's from Arizona. He's uh, six foot four. He's about 210 pounds. He's a pro style quarterback. Um, I talked to his high school coach a couple days ago and he said he's kind of like, you know, what you would think of like a prototypical pro style quarterback where he has really good pocket presence. He's not necessarily like looking to leave all, leave the pocket all the time has a strong arm. But um Joe Moorhead likes a quarterback that can do RPOs. He likes a, guy, a quarterback that can be mobile. And, and this guy sounds like he is um, kind of of that of that cloth. Um, he, he joins an Oregon roster, which I wrote about, uh, that I think is, is setting up really well depth wise in this post Justin Herbert era. You know, everyone kind of went crazy about how Oregon didn't have the, the guy right away to step up when when Marcus left in, in 2014. Um, if you look at Oregon's roster now, you know, they got Tyler Shuck. He's a four star redshirt sophomore. They got Kale Millen, who was a quickly rising three-star. They have Jay Butterfield, who's a four-star coming in. They have Robbie Ashford, who's a four-star coming in. They got this top Ty Thompson, who's a four-star coming in. Um, obviously, it's not guaranteed that any of these guys hits, but Oregon's putting up a pretty good stash of guys right now where um, you know they they have plenty of talent in, in that room, and uh, I, I think they're, they're setting themselves up well for uh, the next several seasons coming up here. Yeah, you got to have numbers at that position and just hope one hits. You know, you got to have one yeah. hit and then one stick around and two are going to leave. You know, that's just par for the course. That's just how it works. Uh, you can only have one starter, and usually people are going to bail after that. Uh, Oregon, <clears throat> you know, they Oregon had a nice run there. Four-star kids they signed uh, during the Mariota era, and none of them worked out. Uh, Rodriguez. Yeah, but Oregon does, but those coaches didn't know how to recruit quarterbacks. They yeah, only exactly. got like Travis three or four four-star. Yeah, like those guys just be, – players don't work out. That happens. <laughs> they had Rodriguez, Mihalik, and Travis Johnson. Oh, and I forgot about Rodriguez. Yeah. yeah. He, now he came in with a the, with the broken leg or a foot or something like that. Or it was, like it was really severe injury. He, he was still walking with a limp two years later. Um, even when he was full well, field, like he still fit. And then, and then, and then that next year they brought in Terry Wilson, who like ended up being pretty good down at Kentucky. Down at Kentucky, yeah. Had he stuck around, like, had he stuck around that 2000 uh, uh, Taggarts year, they might have won a couple more games instead of having to go to Burmeister. Um, because right. Wilson and Johnson left. Johnson became a really good receiver at Montana State. Right? Was he whipping up on your on your Grizzlies a little bit, maybe? Sorry, your uh, headphones are your your microphone's breaking up a little bit here. Yeah, okay, sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but you know, what's funny about that is that all those big time four star kids they got, the guy who emerged as the last man standing was Lockie, right? It, but yeah. in in a real what the scenario you'd want though is you'd want one of those four star kids to pan out and Lockie to stick around as the backup, never emerge as the star among not the star, but as the the last man standing among that group. Now you look at this situation here, and you know I would say mathematically the odds are that you're not going to go through that again anytime soon. Um, that one of these three or four four star kids are going to hit, so they should be okay. And you're, you're right; it's you know adding another guy is not going to hurt, and they're going to add another guy next year. That's the thing you got to keep adding them because you never know who's going to mm-hmm. work out. And you know, obviously, the the, the caveat is not all four stars pan out. Uh, uh, Braxton Burmeister was a four star quarterback, and um, yep. that was that was a, a a rough period when when Oregon needed him uh, when uh, Herbert was injured. But uh, think about that: uh, that was four four star kids from twelve to seventeen that didn't work out. Four, they were zero for four. How many quarterback coaches did Oregon have during that period? So they had they had Helfrich. Uh, Frost, Frost and then Yost. What was yeah? 
because Yost was coaching. Lubick was never coaching quarterbacks, right? He was. He just went from wide receiver to OC. I think that I think that's how it went. Because anyways, because uh, Yost came in when they when. Yeah, because Lubick Yost, was Yost, a receiver yeah, to Yost, OC. Yost, Yost, Yost came Frost. in during during twenty sixteen. Right, that was his, that was his lone year. Man, that's like the forgotten assistant coach. <laughs> just just came in and left and all in, all in one season. Forget, Anyways, uh, get that hair. <laughs> well, I mean, he had he he did have incredibly unique hair. I was I was going to leave it at incredible hair, and I was like, yeah, it's it was something. <laughs> I liked that guy. He he had he had like the big mop top surfer hair, and like would wear like wrap around Oakley sunglasses. Like he looked like he was out of like a '90s surfer movie. He was a character. Um, and I like players liked him a lot too. Like like yeah. they you know it was it was just he was fun. A, a, he didn't take it too of, seriously. Exactly. It, it was a case of bad timing there for on his part. Um, okay, so. Our, our guest coming up is Chris Miller. Uh, Aaron, you know him uh, much better than I do, uh, but I, I thought it would be fun to get him on here just because, um, you know, especially with the, the sports closing down, he was he was coaching with uh, the XFL Houston. Uh, that team was doing awfully well. Uh, can you can you give us a little bit more about our uh, our guest coming up here? Yeah, Chris Miller is one of those guys who uh, sometimes gets lost in the shovel when people talk about great Oregon quarterbacks, but he was certainly one of those back in a time when the, when the program wasn't very good. First-round pick to the Atlanta Falcons. He was a pro bowler in 1991. Um, he uh, Injuries, though, man, concussions shortened his career. Um, and then he's, he's coached here and there since then, most recently, XFL, like you mentioned. But before that, he was the head coach at West Lynn when they were lighting it up. Won at least one, if not two, state titles with him as a head coach, and then he stepped away from West Lynn, which, is, which since has been taken over this past year by Keenan Lowe. So another duck has taken over that program. But man, he could sling it. Man, that dude had an arm. wasn't the most mobile guy in the world in college. He was actually decently mobile in NFL, not so much. But man, he had a gun, and uh, yeah, he he was a special special talent coming out of out of high school, excuse me, out of college, first round pick. Right on. So let's uh, let's just move right into that. Here's uh, Chris Miller. Let's start. Let's start with what are you doing right now? How's this time off, forced time off, been for you? I, I, it's got to be frustrating. You guys had a good thing going in the XFL. It was rolling pretty well. And then all of a sudden, work stoppage. How have you been handling the time off and away from football? Well, I tell you, when, uh, when our XFL season ended or was called, I uh, made that long three-day drive from Houston to Eugene. So nice. it was a long drive. And and a uh, lot of country music on my radio and some uh, pondering and thinking. And uh, when I got back, I'm sitting back in Eugene, got a couple workouts in and kind of wondering if the gyms are going to stay open and what I'm going to do to occupy my time. But I certainly miss football and, and turn it on ESPN is uh, I'm looking for live sports and there's not much on there right now. Uh, coming back from the XFL season compared to the drive out there and, and, and what you were kind of expecting with uh uh, you know, a new team and a new league and everything like, like how, how did the XFL end up, um, you know, comparing to, to what you thought it was going to be like when you took that job? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I got, I got my truck shipped on the way out there. So that was awesome. I was able to fly out there and the truck was shipped, but I figured I'd drive it back uh, since it was kind of unexpected the uh, end to our season. But, you know, we kind of got some preemptive, uh, work in prior to the XFL season. So we had a good idea that it would go down, that it would happen, the preparation and time that was put in. We had a mini camp in December, training camp in January. We had some meetings that kind of led up to 
uh, getting the season started. We had some tryout camps, a couple in Houston that I went back for. So, you know, I got to give Vince McMahon, uh, the owner of WWE, and, and uh, you know, him putting $500 million in and, and structuring three TV contracts with three paying TV networks. And then Oliver Luck, our president CEO, who uh, ran, uh, is running the XFL and, and is managing it. He ran NFL Europe for 10 years, so he really has an understanding of how to run a, a league other than the NFL successfully. And so they did a great job with their due diligence and structuring the league and really centering it around, you know, core football values. And, and uh, so I was, it was, you know what, when we got there, it was, it was just coaching ball. It was coaching ball with a bunch of guys who were eager to play and continue to play. And those of us that love coaching, uh, uh, it's unfortunate we only got through week five, but it was sure fun while it lasted. And they took care of everybody. I mean, that was awesome to see. They they paying everybody. Uh, they didn't leave people hanging. I mean, that's that's pretty good. That's one of the things about that league that sort of I felt gave it a real chance to succeed is that they were going in with someone with deep pockets who was willing to risk losing the money as far as as opposed to going in on speculation, uh, sort of like the Alliance League did, where you're, you're hoping the money is going to come. But what was it like, just from your standpoint, knowing that the players at least were taken care of? Yeah, you're exactly right, Aaron. I mean, it was uh, when Vince set aside, Vince McMahon set aside $500 million, I think it gave us all a bunch of confidence that it was going to happen. And then all the, the uh, eight head coaches got together with Vince and had some meetings. And, and he assured me, he said, hey, guys, don't worry about the money. This thing's going to be going for 10 years at least uh, or as long as I'm around. So he wants it to be successful and kind of be the last feather in his cap uh, in terms of sports and his second go around with the XFL. But you know, it makes a huge difference having the three TV partners that are right. actually paying the XFL to cover games and where the AAF was actually paying their networks to cover those games. So, um, you know, and, and television networks need content during the spring. So I think it's a win-win from that regard. But you can tell from the outset uh, the fact that they flew us all in. We had great training table, good meals. We had the meeting rooms, all the logistics. They wanted to make sure everything ran smoothly from picking the player up at, at the airport to getting him to the headquarters uh, in a professional manner. So it was uh, really well organized and it was a lot of fun. And there will be a 2021 season. And, and I think we'll start our contract as coaches in June. So uh, we're excited about that. For, um, for actually like coaching in games, you know, the XFL had a couple different, a couple different rules, you know, between like uh, how you, you guys did kickoffs to be, you know, being able to do two forward passes, um, what, uh, what, what, what did you like the most just rule change wise, or just about the experience of, of coaching in this league compared to, you know, like what you had done in the past? I think the kickoff structure was great. Uh, you know, the, the two kickoff, the kickoff team and the kick return team would stand on the 30 and 35, but at the opposite end of the field. So, and then you weren't allowed to kick the ball out of the end zone. I think about 75% of NFL kickoffs are touchbacks. So it's kind of a boring play. Right, but in the XFL, it was required that you kicked it off, and it had to stay uh, in pa- in bounds in play. So it encouraged kick returns. So that was exciting. From a coaching standpoint, the thing that really made us rack our brains the hardest was you couldn't kick a point after touchdown. So you had to yeah. one point from the two yard line, two points from the <laughs> five yard line, or three points from the ten. So. Uh, and we didn't have any sample sizes in terms of numbers and percentages as to what was the most opportunistic or beneficial to go for. So you really kind of had to go from a score-by-score standpoint and say, okay, we're up by six. Do we want to go up by seven, eight, or nine? 
And then later in the game, if you could get up by 10 or more, you were up by two scores. So that really entered into the equation. So that, from a number standpoint, there weren't really, uh, you know, mathematics that you could run uh, programs on or whatever to figure those out. What do they call those terms everybody's using now? The uh, Analytics. Oh, the uh, <laughs> analytics. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, the, uh, we didn't have any analytics on it or anything, so it wasn't exact science. So that was kind of cool because it brought the human nature into the game and kind of going with your gut and what you felt good about and calling a one, two, or three point to conversion. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. It made us think. That that rule fascinated me too, and and in the couple of games I watched, I, my conclusion was go for the three, figuring you got to be thirty three percent successful, and you break even at least. Yeah, I think we were two for six. I think we tried the most three pointers in the league, and what we found out of all the conversion tries, I think thirty two or thirty three percent was about the average, whether it was <laughs> from the two yard line, five or the or the ten. So. Mm. Uh, we went for three, the most I believe in the league, and we were we were thirty three percent, so that wasn't too bad. What was I, I? I was going through your Twitter account and saw the uh, you know it was after you guys' first game, and it looked like you guys had like you know twenty thousand people in the stands. Like, w- were were you expecting like that that sort of like reception from from like you know just the you know I I think the XFL had a little bit of name recognition because of what it had done you know twenty years ago, but what was it like actually you know being a part of building this and then having like that first game in in front of that many fans. Well, it was really cool to be honest. I I enjoy doing things that are new, you know, or or, uh, taking a team that struggled or or needs rebuilding, but this was brand new. This was right off the ground. So, you know, when we walked into the stadium the first day, when I walked in, it was kind of an eerie feeling like, I wonder how many people are going to show up. Are people going to show up? You know, how many people are going to come watch? Is it going to be embarrassing or, or will it show well on TV? So when I first walked into the stadium, I kind of stopped and looked around and said, okay, this really does feel like a professional or a big-time game atmosphere. And then I think the marketing people and the promotional people did a nice job. Once the Super Bowl was done, uh, they really got after it in terms of marketing and, and uh, you know, getting it on as many uh, networks as they could. I think it was on – actually, commercials were on the Super Bowl about the XFL starting up the following weekend. So – I think we had about 17-5, 17-8. In our last home game, we were right at 20,000. And the fans were awesome. They were loud. I, you know, Seattle had about 28-5, and St. Louis had about 29,000 fans. So, you know, at the end of the day, people love football. And once they could identify with you, names like P.J. Walker, our quarterback, and, and some of the guys playing in the league, uh, the quality of football was really good. So I think the fans enjoyed it. And tickets were Anywhere from twenty bucks to fifty bucks. I mean, it was very reasonable for people to go watch. Now, you coached in the NFL for a few seasons with Arizona. You coached quarterbacks. You coached Kurt Warner. You coached Derek Anderson, uh, and then you you disappeared from the the pro college ranks. Uh, coached at Westland for a while, won some state titles there. What made you get back into a higher level of football? And why did you leave the NFL after those few years with Arizona? Well, in the NFL, I was actually with Arizona for four years. One was a training camp and then three regular seasons, and then our staff got let go, so I didn't have a choice there. Thank goodness I still had a year left on my contract, so that was nice to kind of be paid right. for an off season. But, you know, coaching Kurt Warner and Larry Fitzgerald and Anquan Bolden and Matt Leiner and Derek Anderson and all those guys was a great experience. Uh, you know, I'm kind of at the point where I, I really enjoy life right now, and the NFL can be a grind, especially when the organization struggles. And the Arizona Cardinal organization had struggled you know, they went to the Super Bowl in 2008. I was a small part of that year. And then 2009, we made it to the second round of the playoffs. And 
then Kurt Warner retired, and we let go of Antoine Bolden and a couple other high-salary guys with a pending strike. So we went uh, from the playoffs to 5-11, and 11, and it was quite a, a challenge and a, a tough season in terms of from a coaching standpoint. And then so I was away from that and got an opportunity to coach up at Westland. And high school football is awesome. You know, it's the purest form of football. Friday nights are incredible. They're fun. It's low, low pressure, low stress, but still the competition, you know, is still there from a coaching standpoint. That was fun. We built a really good program up at Westland. And then my good buddy June Jones got the eighth and final head coaching position with the Houston Roughnecks in the XFL. And, and he flew into Portland and came and met with me at Westland. He says, hey, man, I'd love to have you be on my staff and be my coordinator. And, and so I just kind of looked at the logistics, the contracts, and how everything. And I knew I worked with June. He was my offense coordinator with the Atlanta Falcons for three years. So June and I kind of have a relationship and go way back. And, and the salary was right. It was full benefits and working about only five and a half, six months uh, out of the year in terms of coaching. So uh, it fit well, and it was a lot of fun. And I wanted to kind of get back and coach football at a higher level. So that was kind of the main driving force was coaching with June and coaching football at a higher competitive level. Uh, one more quick thing. Uh, the linebackers coach at Houston, Tom Mason, uh, yeah. he, was the, he was a defensive coordinator at Portland State back when I was there during the Chris Crawford era, the Pokey Allen era. How's Tom doing? Yeah. Mace is a great guy. Tom is a terrific coach. You know, he's 63, lives up in Idaho, so we talked a lot about fishing and such. And But a very good football coach, detailed guy. And he talked about Pokey a lot at this time yeah. in Portland State. and Very well-traveled. So, yeah, but he's a good dude. June put together a great staff, and that made it a lot of fun as well. So you were at Westland when Peyton Pritchard was playing basketball there. Now, I understand he was a really good quarterback coming up as a kid, maybe played his freshman year and then stopped playing football. Is that true? And did you try really hard to keep him out there? Yeah, that's true. Peyton uh, was a really <laughs> good football player. I, I, I wasn't there, but I heard he was very talented. And, and I have a kid. I had a kid named uh, Tim Tawa as well who rewrote pretty much all the state of Oregon uh, passing records. Uh, while we were at West Lynn, he's down in Stanford playing basketball. Right. So I think Peyton wanted to kind of put all his efforts into basketball and, and they won. Man, it was sure fun to watch their team. They had a lot of talent on that football or on that basketball team. And But I could see him. It's funny. We have a picture of, of, a, of the fans in the background and then Peyton was just like dialed in, looked like he was competing and actually playing the game himself as a spectator. So you knew he wanted to be out there, but I think his decision served him well. And He's got a chance to be college player of the year and hopefully be a high draft pick in the NBA. But yeah, it, it, I know it killed him not being able to play. I was at a, I was at Oregon's pro day last week and I was talking with uh, uh, Justin Herbert's dad and uh, I had asked him if, if Justin gets nervous before these things. And um, he said, no, not really. You know what, what he, he said, Justin would actually get more nervous before Oregon, Oregon games. Cause he put, He's like, Justin doesn't talk about this, but he puts a lot of pressure on himself being, you know, the guy from Eugene playing quarterback from Oregon. Um, and, you know, I, I think I think that's something we, we all considered a little bit. But I mean, you obviously have have first hand knowledge of, of that unique situation and was just just kind of curious about your thoughts about, you know, be, being that having that extra layer of, of, of being the, the local guy playing for the local team. Yeah, what's kind of cool about that story is Mark Herbert, Justin's dad, was my all-state high school wide receiver uh, and free safety at Sheldon High School. So we go back to grade school and middle school, and and it's a great story to see Justin doing so well. And I saw him throw a pass when he was in fourth grade, rolling to his left, flipped his hips, threw it way back to the right about 35 or 40 yards. I was like, wow, this, this kid's really special. You know, he's going to be big time. But 
you know, I think Justin probably felt more pressure than I did. I think when I got to Oregon, um, they had been three and eight and two and nine the two previous years before I got there. And then Rich Brooks hired Bob Toledo to come in and be the coordinator. So, you know, we had a couple six and five years and we were kind of the building bridge, if you will, uh, to the program back in the day. And we were all partying too much and having too much fun. So we, <laughs> we didn't worry about too much pressure uh, back in the day. It wasn't were you at Taylor's? Were you at Taylor's? Oh, yeah. Did that, did that exist? The three stooled uh, stool right there, the three legged stool were those three spots. So we had a lot of time back then and had a lot of fun. But uh, I think Justin, you know, the stakes are so much bigger to Oregon now. It was on a national level in terms of, you know, the pressure to perform and a Power Five conference team and one of the top programs in the country. And, and I couldn't be more proud of Justin and his teammates, how he played and how he handled it, winning the Rose Bowl and the Pac-12 championship his senior year. It was, And it was important, really, for him to, you know, because I don't think he put a stamp on the program his first couple of years playing. He had the injuries and, and broke the collarbone. But so for him to come back this year and have the type of year he had and, and, and win a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12 was huge. And, and I can see him. He's a very introverted young man, and but he cares. I mean, he cares deeply and, and going to his home state college was extremely important. So I know he's very proud of what he accomplished. He would have been the uh, first multi-year starting quarterback to not win the conference since Dixon, who actually split time in his first year as a starter. And, but Dixon only didn't win the conference because he hurt his knee. So, yeah, it was a big deal for him to, to get that, and I was happy to see that happen. And I remember Dennis, I think, was – yeah, Dennis was in on the Heisman Trophy. Yeah. I think they, they had 8-1 and one or something at the yeah. time, and he was balling, and then he got his knee, yeah. Yeah, they were. They had the conference pretty much locked up. They had. They were number two in the nation. They were probably going to go to the national title game. He was going to win the Heisman, and then bad luck hit. Uh, so, where do you think Herbert fits? Where do you think Herbert fits in the legacy of quarterbacks at Oregon? Oh man, uh, I tell you what, I think he just fits in the in the the legacy that there is. There's been some tremendous quarterbacks that have gone through Oregon over the years. You think about the list, and it's really impressive and. You know, I don't know if you say he's a top five guy. He may be top five, definitely top six, top eight uh, in the top ten. But I think he had a tremendous career. And, and uh, you know, his name will always be well-respected amongst the Oregon quarterbacks. And he's the most recent one, so I think it's probably the freshest on our mind. But I think Marcus Mariota is on that pedestal. And, of course, Dan Fouts, a Hall of Famer, and Joey Harrington, Captain College, you know, Captain Comeback, and, and – uh, Billy Musgrave followed me and took Oregon to the first bowl game, I think, in 1989 and quite some time. So Danny O'Neill in the Rose Bowl and then Bob Barry and Norm Van Brocklin. So, I mean, the list is tremendous, but uh, I know Justin is certainly high on that list. So here's a question I have for you. It's a little convoluted, so bear with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little convoluted. So one of my favorite debates ever on Talking Ducks when I was on that show with Newman and, and Harrington and, and Kent was when I was debating Joey – in 2013, before Marcus had won the Heisman, I was debating Joey who was better between Joey and Marcus, and I was taking the side of Joey, and Joey was taking the side of Marcus. <laughs> and I was just kind of doing it for funsies. But, but my point at the time was, <clears throat> aside from the fact that Marcus hadn't won a conference title, is that I believe that Joey, you, Musgrave, go back to Dan Fouts, that a lot of these quarterbacks who didn't put up the same types of numbers as Mario did – could have, other than the rushing numbers, had you played in a no-huddle spread attack. Like, if you take – I remember making this point. You take Joey, you take Chris Miller, two first-round NFL draft picks, 
and you stick them in a no-huddle spread offense with four good receivers, they're going to throw for 4,000 yards and 35 to 40 touchdowns. Like, it's just, to me, it's a given. How do you feel about the stat uh, distortion is what I call it? Like, it's the stats have been so, so blown out of whack. And how would you have liked to have played in a system like that? Well, I think the system would have been awesome. You know, I mean, uh, with the with the no huddle and tempo offense, you're getting what eighty to eighty five plays, yeah. times ninety. So you're, you're getting a tremendous amount of plays in terms of volume. But you know, I think it's I really don't worry about all that. I think it's a sign of the times. Offense has evolved. I mean, we were I remember back in high school, it was big. You know, we were a tight end, two wide receivers, and two backs. If we went slot and put the receivers mm-hmm. on the same side, that was like, ooh, wow, they're in slot, man. They're getting- that was exotic in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was really exotic. And then <laughs> then uh, when Bob Toledo came in, we did some 11 personnel, which was three wide receivers, a running back, and a tight end. So, I mean, that was exotic. And, right. and uh, I heard your debate talking about, or I saw it on Twitter, about John Elway and his career and where he ranks in the, in the, in the hierarchy <laughs> of the great – Oh, here we go. Five guys. So, <laughs> I think uh, – you know, I think it definitely is a sign of the times. The tempo offense, the getting up there, snapping it fast, that Chip Kelly kind of made in vogue here at Oregon. Uh, you know, the guys are obviously going to have bigger numbers and more uh, blown-up numbers and those type of things. But I think you look at, you know, we were kind of a program that got the, the arrow on the uptick, and then Billy Musgrave and that crew, like I said, got Oregon to a bowl game in 1989. And then you had the Cotton Bowl in 95, and boom, then mm-hmm. they put the five and the six guys, the money guys together to take this thing to the highest level, which Oregon has. So, um, But I think Joey had a tremendous college career. I mean, the comeback he had against Arizona State, we were down 14 twice at ASU and came back and won that. I mean, he was an awesome college quarterback maybe his game didn't quite transfer or translate as much to the nfl but he got stuck in detroit i think you see what Achilles smith did in college he was phenomenal but then he got stuck in cincinnati and both those guys were the number three pick in the nfl draft in the first round so i think it'll behoove justin if he can draft i see he's projected anywhere from 18 to 21 to maybe san diego miami new england somewhere like that so i think it will benefit justin if he can go somewhere and learn from somebody maybe for a year or two, not be forced to be thrown into the wolves, so to speak, and be on a bad team, and then, uh, you know, benefit from having the talent around him. So I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where he goes, and I'm extremely excited to see uh, where he lands on draft day. Piggybacking off of Aaron's question about just the different offenses and different eras, um, I I remember uh, I was watching the NBA Finals this year with my dad, and he doesn't watch much NBA these days. And like three minutes into the game, he's like, Oh, this doesn't look like basketball. Everyone's too just many three threes, four, too many threes, you know, like, like, like that sort of thing. And uh, I was curious, and this might be a weird question, but you know, having played during an era where offenses were more conservative and, you know, a, a quarterback might put up like a 13 and 12 touchdown to interception stat line compared to what, what you're coaching now. Like when you think about football, do you think about it in the way that of back when you played, or do you think about it more now in, in the in the way that you in the the way that it is now like like what's what's your preferred preferred style of football did you see his westland offenses my god (laughs) (laughs) i think as a you know i'm a football junkie uh i'm a football connoisseur so i mean i love it for all eras uh you know i appreciate the the air coriel back with dan fouts and kellen winslow and all those guys back in the day and then watching the west coast offense and it's heyday with uh Bill Wallace and Joe Montana and that whole crew. But, you know, I, I think now I coach, you know, I take some core things I learned from Mike Shanahan and Gary Kubiak when I played for the Denver Broncos in 99. 
Uh, we still run a counter pass that I learned at Oregon called a waggle, a waggle pass back in the day, and I still run it a lot, uh, even in uh, the NFL or the XFL or when I coached at West Lynn. So, but I think the game has evolved more in terms of, uh, you know, let's see how many uh, plays we can get called in a game. And, 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 you know, really, when I was in the West Coast offense, we had a, with the Denver Broncos in 99, we had a play that was 18 words long. And there's no way you get called and, and playing a tempo offense, right? So I think nowadays you simplify, you make things easier. The verbiage is a lot less. And and uh, I think in terms of today's offense, it's all predicated on protection. You know, you have to protect all these fire zones and these zone dogs. And, you know, defenses nowadays are just trying to pump your protections and figure out a way to put pressure on the quarterback or sack him. So really the game evolves now around protections, and protecting your quarterback and making sure he can get the rock out. Where back in the day, it wasn't like that. People played cover one, they played man three, they played cover three, and they just rushed straight up the field. If you had a TE or an ET stunt in the D line, that was exotic. So, you know, the games evolved, but um, I appreciate it all levels and all generations. I think it's in a tremendous place where it's at now. The NFL made some news this offseason by declaring that they're no longer going to test for and suspend players for smoking marijuana, which has been a point of contention for years because everyone knows that a lot of players will smoke during the season, but then they're not allowed to in the offseason. They get tested for it, which always seemed kind of hypocritical to me. What do you think about that change in mindset by the NFL? Uh, I think it's probably wise. I, I know I'm taking the CBD fluid. You know, I need a new, I, I need shoulder surgery and a new right hip and it kind of helps me get through the day and, and it really helps. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of those guys, maybe a bunch of those guys are hooked on smoking weed. I think some probably it uh, maybe helps with their demeanor, mellows them out if they have anxiety or issues. or And then a lot of it, I think, helps with the aches and pains. You know, I think yeah. it is medicinal or medicinal, excuse me, medicinal and, uh, and helps in that regard with them dealing. Because, you know, you get, we played on some of the poor surfaces. Like when I played at Otson, man, it was hard turf on top mm-hmm. of concrete. So it was brutal, you know, and I feel it in my hips and my joints and knees and and I think guys nowadays play on better surfaces. So, um, but I, I think it's okay. I think they put a lot of thought into it, and, and uh, it's a popular. I mean, it's legalized in many states now. I don't know how many. So, why bang your head against the wall and fight it to, rather than just allow it and realize it's really not a uh, a thing like a cocaine or uh, opiates or anything like that that is uh, totally addictive and can create some real, real issues. Uh, so. I think it's probably wise in terms of uh, the NFL's decision to allow it. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we're in a situation now where, you know, there's no spring football going on anywhere across the country for obvious reasons. If spring ball never happens and those meetings never happen even as well, what does that do to a program in terms of its preparation for the season? And do you think the NCAA should a lot for like, let, let's say this all dies down by June. Should they allow teams to have a spring football in the summer or try to make up for that? Or uh, do you think it's just a situation where it's going to really hurt the play come fall? Uh, I don't think it'll hurt to play come fall. I think, I think there's ways around it. You know, if they don't have spring football, what those guys get 15 practices, I think nowadays, and they're not padded. Um, or they may not be full go, full contact type situations. So uh, I'm sure they would miss, coaches would miss those sessions for an opportunity to evaluate guys. Like if there's a quarterback competition, say like it might be at Oregon this year, you know, those spring practices give a guy an opportunity to maybe separate himself uh, in, a, in a competition like that. But 
I think coaches are very good at uh, adapting to situations. And, you know, if you have an opportunity to, to, to still do your install and still do your meetings, like our new offense coordinator that's come in at Oregon, if he can still meet with his guys and get up on the, you know, the video screen and, and put the plays up that he's run and, and teach it off that way rather than just looking at a playbook picture, you know, that will help get the guys prepared for camp in, in, uh, in August. You can also have, you know, player-led workouts too where the players just take – hey, let's go out and work on this install today and work on these plays, and maybe it's an eight-day install, and, and the players just do that. So I think there's ways around it. Um, economically, I don't know how it would affect college football. I think the viewership for some of the spring games, like Oregon's, is you know, 30,000, 40,000 fans go to those things. So uh, it's an event that would probably be missed, but I think there's ways to get around it. And then uh, you just get less reps, but I think that would just put that much more important on fall camp and you know, maybe they lengthen that out a little bit or something this year, if that's the case. All right. Well, we covered a lot of topics there. Thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with this hiatus and finding something to do. Do you play Madden? Can you get your fix playing some Madden on Xbox or something? Like, you know, I'm not a video game guy. You no? play Tiger Woods golf a lot with my son, but once he started <laughs> beating me, I quit. <laughs> I think I think what I'm going to do is just kind of work on some XFL. Uh, uh, preparation, you know, do some projects. And I also got my college degree December 14th in 2018. So I've got my oh, nice. college opportunities. Yeah. So some college opportunities come available. Uh, I want to make sure I'm extremely prepared for that. So, and then I'll just get some workouts and, and try to keep myself busy and, and pray that this, uh, this uh, CV19 gets away soon and everyone stays healthy and we're able to kind of move forward with life uh, as we're used to it, man. All right. Yes, well, thanks sir. for thanks for joining us, Chris. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Stay healthy and uh, keep on, man. Yeah, thanks, Chris. All right. All right. Hey, thanks again to Chris Miller for uh, for joining us. That was great. Um, Aaron, what do you got coming on the athletic here in the coming in the next in the coming week? <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're getting I mean, loopy uh, out here. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, no, the Seahawks brought back Bruce Irvin who was a first-round pick and was on the Super Bowl teams uh, as a pass rusher. So I've been uh, diving into his, his game video to sort of tell Seahawks fans what exactly they're getting eight years later, something like that. He had eight and a half sacks last season. Also, they signed three offensive linemen um, on the cheat, which means that Jermaine Effetti is probably going to be out as right tackle, which I know a lot of Seahawks fans will be happy about that. So I'm going to dive into those three and see exactly what they're getting there. Is this going to be good for Russell Wilson, or should Russell Wilson uh, you know, get his track shoes ready to run for his life a little bit more than usual? Uh, and just waiting for more NFL news here and there. And the, clown, the clowny thing, what's up with Jadavion, man? Is he going to sign or not? I think as every day goes by, it's closer to him returning to Seattle because he's not finding the money out there that he wants. He wants Khalil Mack money? Yeah, Come he, on, give me he's a break. Look, he's – He's he's looking for crazy money. I know, and he's a crazy talent. Like twenty three million sacks. Yeah, <laughs> three dude. He had three sacks in a contract year. Like I, sacks aren't everything. He had a lot of pressure. I mean, he, he's still obviously a very good talent, but you can't go out there saying I want as much money as defensive player of the year guys and Mac and Aaron Donald when you're not close to that. So if he comes second tier money, then that falls back into Seattle's wheelhouse. So that's pretty much what I'm what I'm monitoring. Um, I just. I don't know what else to, to even do at this point. I mean, I guess I could write about a recruit or something at Oregon. I don't know. Um, I, oh, no, I just remember. Actually, I'm going to do, do this Oregon-related. I'm going to look back at the best late-round 
draft picks out of Oregon ever. You know, I I love me some lists. Okay, so I I have I have a long Q and A with uh, Peyton Pritchard coming out uh, tomorrow on the Athletic, and actually for a little bonus from that next week here on the podcast, uh, we're going to spice up some of that audio and uh, get it out there. I just had a fun. Uh, exit interview style with Peyton Pritchard. You know, it was the, his press conference last week with Dana Altman when they announced the cancellation of the season was so much like kind of like doom and gloom. And, you know, this is unfortunate and all that. And I was like, you know what? Peyton Pritchard's been been in our Oregon sports lives for eight years. I want to kind of ask him like the gamut of uh, of – uh, of questions that you can, you know, favorite teammate, best trash talker, best best underrated Oregon high school player he played against, all these sorts of things. So that will be coming out nice. tomorrow um, with a little bit more on uh, the podcast next week. And then, um, yeah, we got some other stuff cooking up, but uh, I'm not, not going to do some gonna... dueling lists. See if you could, you know, dive into okay. that. The deep end with me and go toe to toe. I might just go walk outside. Uh, um, <laughs> anyways, we'll <laughs> so we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back uh, uh, next week with that that Pritchard episode. Uh, Aaron's got Aaron's actually got real news coming with uh, all the you know actual NFL stuff happening. I'm just more doing lookbacks and uh, uh, actually you know. Uh, going to be trying to connect in with some of the, you know, the players and, and recruits and whoever who have been impacted the most by uh, kind of these cancellations and, and schedule yeah. shifts and stuff. So we'll, we'll definitely have some st- stories on that coming out in the next couple of weeks. But uh, for now, Pritchard's out tomorrow. Uh, Fentress has got his column about calling out Jadavian J- Clowney for not taking just the, <laughs> the veterans minimum. And uh, yeah, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back next week on uh, It Never Ends.